This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Our guest today is author Lacey Crawford, who just published a stunning memoir called Notes on the Silencing. In it, she shares the harrowing, heartbreaking, and important story of the assault she suffered when she was 15 years old while attending St. Paul's boarding school and the school's subsequent attempt to silence her. Today, we talk about how the school's grave mishandling of her assault was just as traumatizing as the assault itself, the ways this kind of abuse becomes parts of systems and normalized, and she shares quite possibly the most beautiful explanation I've heard of what healing means to her. For context, I also attended St. Paul's, and Lacey was five years ahead of me. I'm so thankful that she shared her story in her memoir and that she joined us to discuss it today. People have said to me so much that I'm brave for telling this story, and I know that comes from a place of generosity and grace, and I receive it as such. But why? Why is it brave to tell the story of what they did to me? I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Right. So what we're anticipating, all of us, is the shame that I must feel. And that is the shame that they put into me, frankly. I mean, with a, a violation of my body, a violation of my integrity, a violation of myself. I was the first person who silenced myself. I couldn't tell anyone. I didn't understand what had just happened to me. And I thought if I said nothing, it would go away. OK, let's get to my chat. Well, wow. I mean, I... I think I mentioned this to you on Instagram. I have been sort of eyeing your book and scared to pick it up. And then, of course, I couldn't put it down, but it was such a hard read. So just for context, I was at St. Paul's five years behind you. And so, and I'm sure you're getting this reaction from 
everyone who went to St. Paul's and people who went to other boarding schools, but it felt like many, so many parts of it were my story that it was really hard to read, but it's beautifully written and a gift for all women. So thank you for writing it because I know you certainly didn't have to. Thank you for reading it. It's funny. I did feel like I had to write it, but we can, we can talk about that. Yeah. You know, I don't, it's hard to even know where to begin. I guess the place, the thing that was so, you know, it's funny, you were talking about learning about sex from Clan of the Cave Bear. And like, that's how I learned about sex. And I was an advanced math student. And I came my fourth form year. And, and I also love the school. And, you know, I've been a pretty devoted alumni, although struggling, like many of my friends to stay devoted, because you know, I loved my education and there were so many things about that school that were so incredible. And at the same time, I am also raging about the ways in which we have all been made complicit and the things that happened there that were known or unknown or talked about or not that, you know, we all in some as children carry the part carried the burden of. And I just want to say, I listened to you on NPR when the book first came out and it was, it, I had to pull the car over because you said something to the effect of the most meaningful things, the response that you had heard was friends of the boys who said, we knew what had happened to you and we didn't do anything or say anything. And oh, I thought that was just staggering. So that was my, the longest preamble. And I'm sure everyone's like, what are they even talking about? So do you mind just sort of ex- sketching out sort of the context of notes on the silencing? Of course. It is the chronicle of the sexual assault that I suffered when I was 15, and then the state investigation that I participated in 25 years later. And I do go into real detail in the book about what happened to me because it was quite simple and straightforward. But for that reason, I don't know if you'd like to offer a sort of trigger warning of some kind <laughs> to people yeah. who are listening. So for people for whom the explicit conversation about sexual assault is going to be uncomfortable or painful, take care of yourself and listen to something else for a while. For me, I think the greatest challenge of the experience that I had following the assault was throwing off the shame that I felt and that I carried. And I find that one way to do that is to be very transparent about what Mm -hmm. happened. So when I was 15, I was a junior at St. Paul's School, which is sort of so-called elite New England boarding school, very wealthy, very privileged, small, 500 students. I loved it too. I had struggled to find a place for myself there, but by my junior fall I had, and there was so much opportunity and so much promise on that campus, and I wanted to be a part of all of it. And I received a phone call on the payphone in my dorm one night from the payphone in a boys' dorm. This was in 1990, so it was before cell phones, certainly. And it was a senior boy I didn't know very well. He was a very prominent athlete, captain of several teams, about a foot taller than I was, very imposing figure. Everyone knew who he was. I think anyone who's been to an American high school knows who this guy is, you know. And he had a serious girlfriend who was very beautiful. And he was calling me and he sounded like he was crying and he needed my help. And I couldn't imagine what he needed my help for. But long story short, I agreed to leave my dorm after hours. This was a boarding school. So I, I ran across the campus through the shadows. And when I got to his room, he pulled me up into his window and I landed on a mattress and he was there with his roommate. I hadn't known he had a roommate and I didn't know this other person at all. 
I was sexually assaulted by both of them. As a result of the assault, I contracted herpes very deep in my throat and nowhere else in my body. So it was a genital herpes case that developed about a week after the assault. I went to the infirmary of my boarding school and without being able to admit to what had happened, I asked for help because my throat hurt so badly that in no time I wasn't able to eat solid food and the infirmary couldn't see anything because the sores were so far down my throat, which is testament to what had been done to me. At the same time, the boys told everybody on campus that mm-hmm. I was up for threesomes, that I had been previously a freckle-faced, ponytailed choir girl who very much would have liked to have a boyfriend and didn't. And now suddenly I was famous for you know leaving my room in the middle of the night and you know, forgive me, but performing fellatio on two seniors who I didn't know in the dead of night. And this was quite a cause celeb, as it would be in any high school class. I got sicker and sicker and was eventually sent to a physician off campus who diagnosed the herpes. But that diagnosis was never communicated to me or to my doctors at home in Chicago or to my family. Rather, the school kept that information to itself. When many months later, I finally told my mom over the phone, the very same payphone, what had happened to me, she flew me home to Chicago right away. I went to see my pediatrician. My pediatrician performed all of the proper examinations that follow a sexual assault and reported the assault to the state of New Hampshire because the two men who had assaulted me were 18 and I was 15. It was a statutory felonious attack. The school launched their own internal investigation into what had happened to me. And they talked to a lot of people on campus. They did not talk to me. And they concluded that it had been a consensual event that night and that there was no need for them to report it to the police, which was against the law. And they built a case effectively against me such that by the time my pediatrician reported the attack to the state of New Hampshire and the state of New Hampshire wished to press charges against these men who had assaulted me, the school was able to threaten me, which they did by telling my father that if I agreed to testify against the boys, both of whom had graduated by that point, by the way, that if I agreed to testify against the boys, they would put me on the stand and they would say that I was a drug dealer, that I was promiscuous, that I routinely flouted conventions and rules on campus, and that I was not welcome back for my senior year. None of these things was true about me or had ever been said about my character on campus before. And my parents and I were faced with the possibility that I would not be able to return for my senior year, that I would not be able to apply to college without having to explain on my record why my residential school was accusing me of dealing drugs or who knows what else. So we agreed not to press charges. I wrote to the police department in Concord, New Hampshire and said I did not wish to go forward with pressing charges. And I was then miraculously allowed to return to St. Paul's School for my senior year. And I graduated and I went to college. And I should add, too, that there was one sort of particularly astonishing piece of news about what the school did as part of their internal investigation, which is that they gathered up many senior boys on the varsity lacrosse team and said to them, that if any one of them had been intimate with Lacey Crawford, he ought to go to the infirmary right away to get checked out for herpes. Effectively, I wouldn't know this for another 25 years, the school told my classmates about my STD before I knew about it myself because I had not yet been properly diagnosed by my physician at home in Chicago. So what they managed to do was build a case that lied and slandered me and shamed me, and then they threatened me with expulsion. So I returned to campus with 
quite a lot of gossip swirling around to me. And I was a pretty shattered girl mm. at that point. But I got through just barely my 20s, sort of by the skin of my teeth. I had a lot of privilege and a lot of luck and a lot of resources. And nevertheless, it was really harrowing for a while, the way that had shaped me and my experience of myself and my community. When I was, I guess, 42 years old in 2017, the state of New Hampshire opened a formal investigation into St. Paul's School because there had by that point been so many stories of assault on campus, some of whom had risen to national prominence in the media, most particularly the case of Chessie Prout, who was assaulted as a 15-year-old freshman by a senior named Owen Labrie. He was ultimately convicted on three or five charges and spent time in prison. The state investigation invited people to come forward who might have information about how the school had kept young people in harm's way had they failed to protect the young people on their campus. So I very quietly, very privately got involved in that investigation. And in the course of it, Concord Police, who I was working with, discovered in my student file, the written proof of exactly the plan of silencing that I've just laid out for you, how I would not be invited back if I testified against the boys, how I had to drop the charges. All of these things had been mapped out by the school's lawyer. It turns out that the school's lawyer back in 1990, 91 is still a very prominent lawyer in the state of New Hampshire today. And so the attorney general refused to include my case in his investigation of St. Paul's School. Now, he will give you a different explanation for why, but he severed the Concord police and did not include my case. And so I was told when I was, you know, 42, almost 43 years old, in the middle of Me Too, Weinstein is going, you know, is being hauled up in court and all over the world, women are coming forward. And I was being told that my case would not be included and that these men were going to succeed in silencing me again. And I realized that the only thing for me to do was to tell the story and to tell it as truthfully and completely as I could. So that's a very long winded way of saying what drove me to write this memoir. No, thank you. And thank you for writing it because, and I'm sure that the response to you privately, I know I've seen the response to it publicly, certainly has been so affirming. And it is, in some ways, it's so not complex. But when you think about it in the context of the way that the school has historically operated, and I know that they have vowed to do better, and that the rector is a, a woman who I know has, you've spoken to and and promises substantive change. But and I don't know, you know, having only spent one year in public high school in Montana, what the differences are. But it is a culture where that sort of treatment of women certainly happened and was discussed. You know, I, you know, John Buxton, my older brother was a Cook Scholar. And that's how I came to be at the school as well. And was, you know, met John Buxton, who was super impressive and compelling. And I didn't have a similar experience in the sense that the school wasn't involved. But I think I had a similar experience in the sense of the boys. And there were so many wonderful boys and men from St. Paul's. I just want to disclaimer that, like, dear, dear friends of mine who I adore to this day. But... I had an experience my sophomore year when I was new, and it was in Boston over midwinter weekend with a student who had been expelled from St. Paul's, who was still friends with St. Paul's kids. 
And similar to you, I was like, please don't have sex with me. I was a virgin. Mm-hmm. And and he I didn't I spent the whole night trying to avoid him and get away from him and wasn't successful. And I had a pleasure, like a pleasure response, which I think was a fear freeze response to him. And it was so shameful and mortifying. And the last thing that I ever wanted to happen. And I said nothing. And yet, one day later, when I was back on campus, like you, walking to dinner at the cafeteria, I passed a senior boy who I thought was cute. And he made a comment to me about what had happened in Boston. And it's that culture, you know, it was so mortifying. And it could have been so much worse for me. And yet it was like, wow, it is so unsafe here in that way, you know, and I spent the rest of my time at St. Paul's avoiding any situation in which I would possibly put myself at risk because I was like, this is so fucked up. Like, anyway, I just wanted to never talked about that experience, but I'm still working on it in therapy. And I don't I can't blame the school, but I can certainly blame the culture of a school that allows that sort of behavior to be completely unchecked. I'm so sorry. I'm so angry right now. It's so much easier to be angry on behalf of other women than ourselves. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Since my book was, just before it was published, there was an excerpt that ran in Vanity Fair, and that went pretty far and wide pretty fast. Since that happened the last weekend in June, I have heard now from 118 alumni of St. Paul's School alone. This isn't counting other people who went to other boarding schools or no boarding schools at all. 47 of those alumni have told me about their own assaults on campus. What I have heard over and over is something I think applies to all sorts of communities and not just ours. So there was a very hierarchical structure at St. Paul's. The boys who were athletes were for the most part on top, but there was also a strong system of class and race privilege. And I think wherever students are going to be that privilege, there is pronounced inequality, frankly, in the, in the, the resources and the environments of students who are coming from different places from Montana, mm-hmm. you know, rather than from one of the three houses their family owns in New England. I came from somewhere in the middle of that. I was definitely privileged, but I was not born into a trust fund family. And I was the oldest of my family and the first to go to boarding school. And it was in many ways aspirational for my family as it might have been, you know, for yours. This was supposed to open doors for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that when there are students who are on the campus of a school with that expectation, it raises the stakes for what they're willing to speak speak up about, right? So you had mentioned Buxton, who was a dean on the campus for many, many years. His daughter was actually a couple years ahead of me and was wonderful. He taught, I think, classics, is that right? I think or, so. No, or English, maybe Matthews taught classics. And he coached the wrestling team. I never interacted with him in any capacity. I don't think I ever spoke to him. But he was certainly one of the deans when I was there, one of the vice rectors. And 
as you'll know from the book, when I found out from the Concord Police Department in 2017 that the attorney general was refusing my case. And by this point, the boys who assaulted me had confessed, by the way. I mean, they, they said that what happened that night was consensual, but they did not dispute the details of what went on in that room. So effectively, this is a, a cut and dried case. This is what everybody says they're looking for. Why didn't you report? Well, I did, you know, and they yeah. confessed and here it is, you know, and it is it is black and white and on the page. And I got a hold of my medical records, which I should have done a long time ago. And those medical records from the physician I saw in Concord, New Hampshire, so not someone employed by the school, not someone on the campus, included a phone message from John Buxton. So the summer after I had told my mother, the summer when when I was at home um, and my family was shattered and the lawyers for the school were calling to say she can't come back because she's a drug dealer, which, by the way, there are a lot of things you could say about me, but that's just not one of them. <laughs> that's just that was not me. We all knew who those kids were and they would not have hung out with me either. You know, so anyway, but Buxton had called this doctor off campus. And he had asked to talk about a patient, to talk about Lacey Crawford. And the physician had written returned call sensitive matter. What this means is that the administration of St. Paul School helped itself to my medical records while I was at home, called the doctor, obviously, because they knew that I had contracted herpes as a result of the assault. They knew that everything lined up. They knew, I can tell you now, with adult hindsight, that they were on the ropes as an institution. And they could have gone in one of two directions. You know, they either start asking real questions and listening for honest answers and face the reckoning with what these two boys had done, one of whom had received the highest athletic prize, by the way, when he graduated. They were both on their way to college. Or you go the other direction and you bury the girl. And that's what they did. They buried the girl. And I know that this happens everywhere. This happens all the time. So the assault that I suffered, the assault that you suffered, the assault that so many of us, girls and boys, suffer is as ordinary as can be. I don't claim anything special about my attack. But the cover-up, I got lucky because as a result of the state investigation, I was able to see behind the curtain. You know, I saw the fancy footwork. I saw what the lawyers did. I saw what the deans did. I saw that Buxton called that doctor. I saw that the doctor, for some reason, didn't have complete records of my visit. A lot of things were not as they should have been. And I think so many of us have been failed um, by the administrations mm-hmm. of organizations, schools, churches, shuls, you know, you name it. And it seemed to me that if I could lay out how this happens and how we are all of us a part of these communities, that it might help others who were ready to speak up or were thinking about it. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. 
To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's such an interesting place too in the context like there's so so many well-told details where you talk about sort of seated meal and then like the proto cocktail party after and cocktail party training and you talk about I think it was your soft your fourth form sophomore year roommate and her boyfriend and how he put his hand at the small of her back to walk her into the dining room like they were 40 and there's this adultification you know which I think all teenagers are want, right? But then you also think about being so far from home or not, because as you say, this happens all the time in every conceivable setting. But you think about, you know, as I came from Montana, my parents, like boarding school is such a totally foreign concept. And, you know, my dad's a doctor. I did not grow up in poverty, but certainly was like, I was I had to learn a whole language to understand the culture of St. Paul's. And I'd say that the thing that saved me in a way from potentially more danger is that my parents didn't care about that. Right. Like they would not they didn't know what the social registry was. They didn't. They thought it was sort of a strange, interesting culture, but that they didn't care. They weren't striving for me to be part of it or to be accepted. And so that gave me space to hold myself apart. And then I had my older brother there as somewhat of a shepherd, even though he was only there for a year. But where I think about, and I'm sort of curious about your relationship with your parents, because I think at the end, you suggest that maybe it's maybe not strained, but maybe not intimate. And your mom giving you that the middle name, Demanil, and just how this, the pressure that you must have felt. I felt pressure not to get disciplined because I knew my parents would be like, we have to fly to New Hampshire for this. Like, (laughs) you're dead, you know? But but the pressure, I mean, I could feel it, that the desire, the you call it a wish, you, you you know, say the, the, use the word imposter of your mother's desire for you to be accepted and to be part of that culture must have been so so traumatic on top of what you experienced, then the shunning that you received and the shaming that you received from your peers. So like a testament to your strength. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, but I have friends in you know, similar situations of this, like you should be this way. You should date this person. You should wear pearls. You should wear silk, you know, all of these things. I think, you know, in our mother's defense, all of our <laughs> collective mother's defense, they they grew up in the generation that they grew up in, you know, and in the world that they knew. And they only had certain possibilities available to them, right? So my mother was born in 1950. She was very quickly the daughter of a single mother. My, my biological grandfather left them right after my mother was born, within days of her birth. And so my grandmother was a, you know, a 23-year-old single mother in St. Louis in 1950, which was not a comfortable position to be in. And she ended up marrying someone who was willing to tolerate that. And it was a miserable marriage and a miserable childhood for my mom. And, And so I understand that what my mother wanted for me was the safety of a kind of privilege that was not just resourced. In fact, money was by no means sort of top three. It was about 
the kind of access to connections and networks and institutions that she thought would keep me safe and would give me opportunities. And, and I think that I certainly wasn't aware of that world before I went to St. Paul's, but there, there remains, I think, sort of the last gasp of the old boy network, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of blue-blooded, waspy, Anglican sort of Puritan community that did in fact found many of this nation's institutions and has also been responsible for these nation's crimes. And that is the double-edged sword of a school as as rich as St. Paul's. So I think, you know, one of the nice things about going to high school is that you figure out at one point that you're going to get to leave, (laughs) that high school is not the rest of your life. You know, it's just four years. But if you go to a school like St. Paul's, which is so elite and draws from uh, certain families that have access to such power because of generations of holding that power, you look around at your peers and you recognize that their fathers or mothers or grandfathers or great grandfathers are, in fact, the senators, editors. CEOs, you know, you name it, they are all the people you might wish to grow up and become and that these peers you have will in fact grow up and take those positions themselves. So the stakes are in some ways unspeakably high. And it wasn't only about pleasing my parents, which is something that, you know, I seem to have failed to do at every turn, much as I've tried, but it was about taking hold of the opportunity that was presented to me. And if there is a silver lining to the assault, to my assault, and to what followed, it is that it jettisoned me right out of that world. Any enchantment that I had with that world, uh, with that form of power, with that form of wealth, the private islands, you know, the the private wealth banks, the the families that will never show you a dime, you know, but, but are sitting on resources that are unimaginable to most of this country. All of that soured for me faster than I could possibly have imagined. And I do think that it opened my eyes and helped me to to become an adult I would not otherwise have been. But these schools persist. And I mean, for me, I saw that most clearly with the Kavanaugh hearing. Obviously, he's Mm -hmm. coming from, you know, a Catholic background, but it is the same system of private schools that feeds the private universities, that feeds the law schools, that feeds the clerkships, you know, and or the, you know, the partners at the, the big law firms, the big, what do they call them, white collar firms. And I remember seeing at his confirmation hearing, he was asked about something that he had written with a couple buddies in his yearbook, his high school yearbook that seemed to corroborate the suggestion that there had been a lot of drinking and perhaps some harassment of girls at that time. And it was a girl's name that was shared in sort of mockery on many, many yearbook pages, including his. And he lied. You know, he clearly flat lied. And I, I, my blood ran cold because there is in the yearbook of the year of the boys who assaulted me in 1991, several boys who were joking with each other about gangbanging, you know, mm-hmm. in their yearbook notes. And I know that that was a hazing ritual. That was a hazing ritual that was performed on freshman girls, often freshman girls who were plied with alcohol. These girls would have been 14 years old. The boys were 18, in some cases 19. Were they actually gang raped? Did they think it was actually hooking up? You know, a lot of us were told that it was. And I see that. And I I think now with the eyes of an adult, the eyes of a parent, the eyes of someone who is in a balanced and loving, you know, heterosexual relationship, how astonishing it is that this kind of abuse was normalized and that none of us as girls had any idea that that was not our due. Or some of us did. I didn't. No, I mean, it's it is 
you're thrown in some ways to the and it's to the wolves and it's you know I thought this particular section and I know that he was heckling you and he ended up being sort of an incredible love Alex or I think that's the name that you give him yes but but you talk about if you don't mind if I read this because I thought it was perfect you wrote I turned to where he was sitting propped on a ledge with a bunch of similar goons it was astonishing how these things reconstellated themselves, the microcycles of high school life. Here, the seedling assholes all in a row coming up to take the place of the guys who had graduated just the year before. Already they knew to mock me, couldn't even let me walk by. And it's true because you just saw these hazing cycles. And with girls, they were different and sometimes less pernicious, sometimes more. But it was this and you can almost think of it as a microcosm of the patriarchy, right? And particularly in the way that women can t- treat other women who come up behind us. It's this like, well, this happened to me, therefore it will happen to you. That's right. And, you know, like just because there's no mercy because I was treated like shit and therefore it's your due. And it was amazing just in the three years that I was there to watch the power, the ascension to power, and then sort of the drunkenness that came with that in the context of how particularly the boys with power behaved. That's right. And these are the boys who will go on to become, or so the school says, you know, the leaders of society. And in many instances, they do. They really do. But for that time, they're on a campus with no parents and almost no supervision. And you really are thrown to the wolves. It's true. So in that instance, my my sweet boyfriend, and as you said, there were good boys and good men at St. Paul's. Of course there were. And he was one of them. He was younger than I was, a grade behind. His, his buddies were, as it turned out, not always good, not always good to girls, not always respectful of girls. And that's something that I have to wrestle with, too, is, is what does that mean from the other side for me? The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. And what what are your views on that? You know, I think about the guy, a wrestler, who I was unfortunate enough to have an encounter with. And I'm like, what did he become? And I know that you sort of had no interest in bringing charges against the two boys or men, I guess we could call them. How, how do you, how do you believe that this shakes out? Do you think that this is such a because I I believe that in the context of looking you know thinking about my class in particular and being able to say oh that guy was a shithead yes and those guys were lovely like do you think that this is the character that people bring forward like in the context of Kavanaugh or these two guys like is this who these people are or do you think that they're made sort of into animals by systems I think vulnerabilities toward cruelty are exploited by a system like that. So I Mm -hmm. I have a kind of personal theory that shame has nothing to do with guilt, that shame is actually sort of a free-floating quantity, and that we 
as a society sort of, or as a community kind of unconsciously decide who's going to bear it and who's not. And it, it, you know, because people have said to me so much that I'm brave for telling this story. And I know that comes from a place of generosity and grace, and I receive it as such. But why? Why is it brave to tell the story of what they did to me? I, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't do anything wrong. Right. So what we're anticipating, all of us, is the shame that I must feel. And that is the shame that they put into me, frankly. I mean, with a a violation of my body, a violation of my integrity, a violation of myself. I was the first person who silenced myself. I couldn't tell anyone. I didn't understand what had just happened to me. And I thought if I said nothing, it would go away. You know, I had no idea that, that I was sick, that I would get sicker, that they would tell everybody that it would become what it became. So for me, you know, I think about who they were. One of them, neither one of them was a from a prominent or wealthy family. One of them was there to play hockey, and that was very clear. He was actually drafted straight by the NHL out of high school, which should just give you a sense, too, of the, the power differential, you know, between mm-hmm. a man like that and some of the girls on campus. The other was a student of color which I can only imagine the marginalization, the experience of that. I know from friends of the microaggressions that were rampant and just overt aggressions that were rampant, the racist terms and, and violence that was perpetrated at that time. So I sometimes think, you know, obviously they made terrible choices. I do not absolve them of assaulting me, but they were themselves in positions of of some shame and some subordination. And they grabbed hold of a form of power that was available to them because of the way that school was put together, because of the way that culture worked. They made a bet that they could lure a chorister, a dorky girl to their room and force her down and have her, you know, I don't I was going to say suck them off, which is such an ugly phrase. And I use it in a deliberately ugly way, but I didn't, I did nothing. I tried to breathe. I was gagging. So my passivity is clear that they could do that and get away with it. And you know what? They were right. They were right. They got away with it. So the school protected them. And I, I think therefore that agency is important, but if this were just about a couple bad guys, I could have named them and we'd be done with it. I think it's about systems. I think it's about communities and it's about our culture. And I know that because I know all the people who worked to silence me and many of them were priests and not one of them, not one of them has apologized to me, gotten in touch with me, offered any kind of defense or explanation. As far as I know, they're happily retired, you know, sailing Mm -hmm. their boats or doing whatever it is they're doing. And that for me, that is where... I locate sadism, frankly. It, it, it's not necessarily in those boys, though they certainly acted sadistically in that moment, but in the men who over long weeks and months met together in daylight hours and determined how to silence a 15-year-old girl, that to me is a kind of cruelty that I'm not content to let rest. It's so important. I think there are sort of two sections of the book. One, where you write... It's a curious thing how children are wired to ask for help when hurt or frightened. Ouch, help me. But shame turns us inside out. I can survive this as long as nobody else ever knows, as though secrecy itself performs some cauterizing function, which of course, when it comes to the matter of self-delusion, it does. I couldn't talk about what had happened without having to let myself think about what had happened. The secret served me. And yet it wasn't a secret. It was discussed amongst your peers and the teachers knew, and yet they silenced you. And that happens all the time. But it, it 
all of it, the message that it sends so resoundingly to everyone everywhere is don't speak, stay silent. It will not serve you. And I think we all, you know, I think about what happened to me, which was theoretically quite minor. And yet I still can't shake it. It's these are these have sort of a profound impact. I don't know how you heal. Like, do you feel like you've healed? I don't use a metaphor of sickness and health. Like that's not the spectrum for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, when you say what happened to you is theoretically kind of minor. I mean, you, you described a rape. I, I just want to say that. I'm so I know the R word is really loaded, and and maybe he. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I just you were raped. That that's the word for that <laughs> by almost any lexicon. And so many women have said to me, I didn't realize uh, that I was raped until I read your book. And and he did this and this and this, and I did this and this and this. And it wasn't as bad as you, everyone says, to be polite, you know, to be careful. For me, I think in writing down what they did to me, I had to create a girl who it was done to. Mm. And for the longest time, I didn't like that girl. I didn't want to be the girl this was done to. How on earth was I going to call my parents? My mother's a priest, okay? I could knock it on the phone and say, you know, I, I did. I, there was just no way. There was no world in which that could happen and be good. I, it, it just was impossible. My dad, I was his, I mean, no, you know, just no. And so I abandoned her there. I abandoned that girl. And when I got a hold of my medical records and I saw... I saw the the notes that the infirmary physician, so the on-campus pediatrician who has since died, took about me. He wrote down in late November, it was 30 years ago, that I had herpes and that I would be treated for that for a short period of time. And then he buried those records and they were then destroyed. And the only reason I got them is because they were faxed by accident to my pediatrician in Chicago, because they didn't tell me and they kept me sick. And he described me, and and in his description, I saw myself sitting there on the paper, on the table, opening her mouth, you know, saying, ah, and he couldn't see anything himself because they were too far down. The sores were too far down. So he had the report from the other doctor, which told him what he needed to know, but he didn't tell me. And when I saw that girl, I thought, oh my God, I've left you there. Mm -hmm. And it took me a really long time, but I'm here now. I'm Mm -hmm. here I'm here for you. And you don't have to do this alone. And that is a kind of unification. We could call that healing. I mean, I still have insomnia. (laughs) You know, I still can't talk about Kavanaugh without getting shaky. I I don't, I don't meditate, you know, I mean, I'm like, nothing is put back together again. I, I, but, but at the same time, I reject absolutely any separation from her any effort Mm. to shame her or make her take responsibility for what was done to her. Absolutely not. I've gathered her up. And so that, that's where it is. And we can call that, we can call that health. That's beautiful. And you mentioned to sort of your parents, I think for me, and I think probably for so many people, so many girls in particular, you you recount that moment. I think you guys were skiing where your dad watches you is like, oh, look at your body and how mortifying that moment was of, I guess, sort of that becoming a woman or changing or not being the girl that you once were. And I think for it's so hard to talk, we have such a, a culture of 
not talking about sex in a way, you know, and even when I think about talking about with my sex with my parents now, I'm like, oh, God, no, you know, and never. never. (laughs) And so you're also sort of like, who do you talk about this with? And how do we, you know, this idea of particularly in high school of your parents seeing you as a sexual creature is so gross. And even that I know is not the right words, but I have this sort of like, oh, I can't even think about them seeing me like that. And so I don't know, you know, I think I've interviewed lots of people about sort of sexual education in this country. And one of my favorite is Peggy Ornstein, you know, and she talks about sort of like how, you know, her kids too are like, I don't want to talk about this with you. Yes. And yet we have this culture of silence around it where we're all just figuring it out for ourselves. And it's certainly failing us. And the other thing, sorry, go ahead. No, it just, it introduces shame before, before children even understand what they might use those body parts for, right? They are often taught that they are shameful. And, and from there, I'm not sure where you go. Exactly. And you, sorry, I promise this is the last time I'll read, but in the context too, of this idea of girls as, you know, once you're a sexual being, you're, well, let me read it. You write, I don't owe anyone the telling of this. I never sued or took my abusers to court, nor is it a matter of conscience. I did not want to write it because it should not matter, but of course it does, because a girl who is attacked will so often assume the fault lies with her. There is no escaping a primal culpability. I include the events of the summer I was 15 and open defiance of this presumed vulnerability and to force into view what is to me the chilling logic that a girl who has explored a boy's body or permitted her body to be explored in any way is thereafter suspect as a victim. In other words, it's open season on her. In other words, to believe in the perfect victim is to believe in no victim at all. And I know that was in the context of you having had or having other sexual experiences and this idea that like you're just not a good girl anymore, right? Like you're not this pure vessel to be violated you are it's some somehow some line has been crossed that makes this what happened to you a given or acceptable which I think is so rampant in our culture well right I mean what I had referred to in that writing is I fooled around with a guy the summer before I was assaulted and I knew once I was assaulted well not immediately thereafter but once the police were involved I knew that a defense attorney, that anybody defending the boys would say, well, but look, you know, she did that, you know, she's done that before, right? So obviously she wanted that. And and there are now uh, sort of regulations about what can be introduced, you know, by defense teams with regard to a, a victim in a sexual assault case. But it seems to me clear that we will go out of our way to determine that the girl somehow wanted it or set herself up for it or had it coming or wasn't as wise or as careful as she should have been. And it is astonishing to me how immediately we remove agency from the men who are in so many cases bigger and stronger and older and who choose to do these things in the first place. Yeah, no, absolutely. And sort of, and how we let stigmas around female sexuality silence us. And I said, I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do it again, because it goes again to what you were saying earlier about the way that you've come back to her. You write, it's so simple what happened at St. Paul's. It happens all the time. 
First, they refused to believe me. Then they shamed me. Then they silenced me. On balance, if this is a girl's trajectory from dignity to disappearance, I say it is better to be a slut than to be silent. I believe, in fact, that the, slut, that the slur slut carries within it Trojan horse style, silence as its true intent, that the opposite of slut is not virtue, but voice. So I've written what happened exactly as I remember. It is an effort of accompaniment as much as it is of witness to go back to that girl leaving the boy's room on that October night, sneakers landing on the sandy path and walk with her all the way home. Oh, it makes me cry. I, but it's true. It's, it is those designations, slut, whore, whatever it is that within that, it's like the, the slur of shame and really the only way to, I don't know, get power over that is to, I don't know. I don't know how to disarm it. I guess you're right. It's voice. It is, it is speaking out. I mean, do you feel hopeful? Like, do you feel like finally with Me Too that the culture is starting to change? Do you have hope for St. Paul's? Do you, or do you even care to have hope for St. Paul's, I guess is a more appropriate question. (laughs) Those are, yeah, those are different questions. I I mean, I'm not sending my kids there, right? So, and I I didn't write this for St. Paul's, you know. I find myself in a position now of no small experience, and I believe that I could be helpful to the school if they wish to transform themselves. Some people are working very hard to make that happen. Some people are working very hard to make sure nothing changes at all. And I am not going to allow this to occupy the rest of my life. But I, I think, you know, the word slut is so fascinating because there isn't a corollary for men. So wherever we find a gendered term that doesn't exist for both sexes, that's a big red flag, right? And the reason it doesn't exist for men is because we use it to indicate a woman who has nothing to offer. She's used up, right? Her morality Mm. is gone. And uh, what that does effectively is it silences someone. And one of the most fascinating things is I've had conversations with women, particularly women older than I am. So I'm 45 now, women in their 60s and 70s, in some cases, book groups I've joined. And they have said, you know, there was that girl in my class in high school, in college, you know, who we called a slut, you know, she was the slut. And they say, I'm sure something happened to her. I am sure in every case something happened to her. So I I do not know of an instance of a woman being called a slut who was not in some way abused or maligned. I know a few women who have had completely happy consensual sex with a lot of people, and there are a lot of different words that are used for them, like hottie and X Factor and smoking and like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Magical vagina. Magical, yeah. No, exactly, right? And like, you know, what's her number? And, you know, (laughs) right? So for me, it's the word slut is such a tell that it almost doesn't trouble me anymore because it tells me it has nothing to do with me. I mean, nobody you know, has has hurled that at me for a very long while. I almost wish they would so I could tee off on that because I, you know, I wrote the book, right? So, (laughs) but I I just, I'm kind of on board with the slut power thing, which which is not so much about sex positivity, although three cheers for that too, but simply about refusing a term that has no, that has no male cognate. Yeah. Full stop. I mean, that's, that's all we need to know, isn't it? I think so. I think so. And 
you know, it's interesting. It's because it's the opposite end of the spectrum in the context of St. Paul's. But like, I think rape and it all of its connotations is something that is, as mentioned, yes, at St. Paul's, at these elite institutions, yes, Kavanaugh, and prevalent in every form of our present culture and country. I'm reading this book by Sarah Deer, who's a professor, and it's called The Beginning and End of Rape, Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America. Mm-hmm. And for example, more than one in three of every Native women will be raped. Yeah, I don't think that was a grammatically correct sentence, but 34% and nine out of to- 10 times it's by non-Native men. And because of tribal law, and they're not allowed to prosecute non-Native people. And so it's man camps, fracking, sex trafficking, what have you. But it's happening in every single part of our culture with sort of an unabashed rhythm. And obviously, Me Too, we saw that in every every single industry and every vector of society. How... How do we stop it? I mean, that's the world's most naive question, but how does it end? Yeah, so so I think it ends when a couple things happen. And how do we get from here to there is, you know, answering that is above my pay grade. But I think it happens when, if a girl is assaulted, because things things will happen, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, everybody is going to be instantly perfect. There there will always be aggression and sexual violence. That That's not going to stop. But as a as a blight on society occurring in the numbers that it does what you're what you're describing as a power differential that somehow persists no matter what it is that we do and i do think that it is aided and abetted by i'm going to call it for me internalized misogyny the fact that by the mm-hmm. time they let me go i was convinced it was my fault i was still fully clothed i had begged them not to have sex with me and they didn't they only shoved themselves down my throat so i thought oh i guess they did what i asked them to that's insane. You yeah. know, I mean, that's that's literally insane. But but that was what I arrived at because I was a good girl and good girls take take we, we, we have a handle on things. Right. And, and we keep things under wraps and we manage things and we make sure that nothing gets out of control because that's what girls do. And so for me, I think this ends when you know, they do other things to me and I say, oh, hell no. And I flip on the light and I don't care if a faculty member walks in the room and catches me out of my dorm at night, you know, and says, what the hell are you doing here? And I say, I don't know. I thought he was crying, but look, they're naked. You know, I mean, that's, that's where that, but then the teacher has to say, guys, what the hell is she doing here? And why are you naked? Rather than she's out of her dorm. You know, I mean, it it requires a chain of custody to protect the agency of the girl who is being victimized. So one of the things I've said to St. Paul's is this, after Chessie Pratt was assaulted, she told right away. And the so criminal justice system was involved almost immediately. The school counseling staff was involved almost immediately. The trial dragged on. It was devastating for everybody. Owen Labrie had his admission to Harvard revoked. He was the, the man who assaulted her. He was, as I said, convicted on, I think, three or five charges. And Chessie then returned to school the next year. And she couldn't stay because of the way she was treated on that campus. So this was in 2016, 
you know, and, and what I said to Kathy Giles, who is the female head of St. Paul's school, she's the first female rector in the school's 160 something year history. I said, you will know that you're on the right track when Chessie Prout can come back to her community and be held up and celebrated as somebody who said the truth about what happened to her and then reintegrated into her mm-hmm. life. That's what this looks like. So, you know, we're never going to eliminate sexual violence, but I think when we come to understand it as something bad that a man does that must be remedied via the criminal justice system immediately, and that does not in any way reflect the victim, male or female, any more than if you get hit by a car, you know, that's, it is what it is. So it's almost a collision with a kind of violence that I think if we strip away the shame, it offers us pathways. And I do think too, that the, the interview that you alluded to in the beginning that I did with NPR, I did get a letter, an email from a man who said, I know exactly the, the boys who did this to you, the men who did this to you. They were my roommates. They were my teammates. They were my dining hall buddies. They were my dearest friends. I knew what had happened to you, but I didn't understand. And I'm so ashamed and I'm so sorry. Mm. That is a way forward too. Mm -hmm. You know, if men are the ones who are doing this and predominantly they are, then perhaps men are the ones who can stop. (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree. And you have boys, right? I have young boys, three boys. So let them be matriarchal men and let them do better. We, we talk a lot about how girls are people and, and, you know, consent and privacy and kindness and authenticity. My oldest is 10, so we're not quite having the big talks yet. But I think if there is such a thing as destiny, destiny has given me a chance to make men who would have looked out for little me. Mm. Well, thank you for your book and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for asking me questions and talking to me about it, letting it move you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lacey Crawford. For more from Lacey, pick up a copy of her memoir, Notes on a Silencing. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.